welcome to the June 26th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I am Anthony Bardaway and I'm here with my colleague Romeo Kokratsky. This week we'll be talking about the battle for Donbass, especially the recent events that have been occurring around the Severodonetsk axis, as well as Ukraine gaining EU candidacy, and of course, Ukraine's passing of the Istanbul Convention. Let's get started. So there has been a considerable amount of change around the Severodonetsk axis of the fighting in Donbass, especially. And overall, there has been more changes in the front line recently than there has been in many weeks. Uh, but first, we'll have to be looking at specifically the Severodonetsk battle. Now, originally, the Russians were able to close a, a pocket around the town of Zolote, which is to the southeast of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. If you pay have paid attention to the war for the past many years, Zolote has been one of the frontline towns. I remember announcing various, you know, shellings and such and always be this number of combat actions around Zolote. So this is, has always been quite a hot spot. But Russia was able to advance further enough on either side of Zolote to uh, surround it and take that area, which closes off much of the area that had been south of Lysychansk. So the front lines have been pushed almost to Lysychansk uh, city. So thankfully, it was an ordered retreat from Zolote. Apparently, a small volunteer unit volunteered to be able to hold the line as their comrades were able to retreat back to Lysychansk. So it seems as though the casualties and captured soldiers from that battle are lower than what one may expect, considering that Russians were able to close a pocket, something that they have not been able to do much up until now. Um, but because of this, it made the position of Lysychansk much, much more vulnerable. So the fighters who had been in Severodonetsk, mostly operating out of the industrial sector of the city, were forced to withdraw and reestablish themselves in Lysychansk. They had to cross the Donets River, which we've talked about many times before, and uh, set up new positions on the high ground of Lysychansk, abandoning their previous positions to the south and east of the city. Then, following the loss of these southern defensive positions, it became obvious that Severodonetsk would no longer be able to hold. So the Ukrainian military withdrew its forces from Severodonetsk, effectively surrendering it to the enemy. Now, before this point, the Russians had taken over much of the city except for the industrial area, and the major bridges on either side of the Donetsk had been destroyed. So it was always a very difficult fight, but it is now over. The battle for Severodonetsk is now over, and the next line is, again, Lysychansk. Now, this is uh, quite a serious defeat for Ukrainian forces, but I think everyone kind of understood this battle as uh, stalling action more than anything else. I don't think anyone had uh, uh, serious hopes uh, at least uh, high percentage hopes that Severodonetsk would hold out. It was I always saw it at least as being a place to wear down the enemy in a place that is easier to wear them down in rather than in these like tiny villages where the artillery has been able to um, put the hurt on Ukrainian forces. 
Uh, Severinetsk at this point is also mostly rubble. The city is destroyed. At the same time, I want to not understate the scale of this loss. Severinetsk has been um, the site of continuous urban combat for nigh on two weeks uh, and represented a major Russian push um, to force Ukrainian units out of Luhansk Oblast. One of Russia's main war goals is, of course, the seizure of all of the Donbass, meaning taking the entirety of Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast. And while they have not quite done it, the loss at Severodonetsk means that their path to Slavyansk, which is a city in Donetsk that has also been a hotspot for the past eight years, um, is now much more open than it previously was. Uh, and of course, they now have the momentum to um, start attacking Lysychansk in full. Lysychansk, while being more fortified, may represent a harder defense for the Ukrainian forces simply due to the fact that uh, Russian artillery can now set up in the rubble of Severodonetsk and pound Lysychansk um, basically without stopping. It, this is, as, as we've seen multiple times, one of the Russians' favorite strategies is to simply use artillery to reduce a town to rubble and then go in and clear out uh, the survivors, basically. Um, Severodonetsk, this tactic didn't work as well for the Russians because, as I uh, mentioned, this was urban combat, meaning any artillery strikes would uh, run a very high risk of harming their own troops. <clears throat> but now that this is no longer the case, and Lysychansk is completely um, defended by Ukrainian forces, they can now pound Lysychansk um, more or less without mercy. They, of course, still need to ford the Seversky Donetsk River. Um, they have attempted several fordings previously. None have been successful. Ukrainian forces have pushed uh, the Russians back every single time. However, now that they control basically all of that territory on the Luhansk side of the river, it is likely that their next attempts will be more successful. Now that the Russians control most of the territory on the Luhansk side of the river, they will be able to, they will likely be able to successfully ford um, the Donuts River and start uh, attempting to push back Ukrainian forces deeper into uh, Kharkiv Oblast. The battle for Severnetsk did represent perhaps not a pivotal moment or I suppose I should say it's a bit too early to tell what a what is and is not a pivotal moment um, in the battle for Donbass, but it certainly represents quite a bit of momentum game for the Russians. Now, I do also want to mention that quite a few military experts um, have weighed in saying that the victory at Severodonetsk is mostly symbolic. And Anthony, as you mentioned, the Russians have taken enormous losses trying to seize this relatively small patch of territory and they've used and exhausted quite a bit of both their main combat manpower as well as the reserves to do so and the institute for the study of war in the u.s uh, has said that they expect to see the russian offensive stall out however this is a war and it's difficult to say 
whether the victories of Donetsk will be enough to reinvigorate a depleted Russian fighting force or if they will run out of steam. Obviously, uh, we're hoping for the latter. Yes, and the by close by making this salient toward Lysachan significantly narrower by capturing uh, the Zaloti area, it puts Lysachansk into a very vulnerable position where even though it is still protected by the, from the north and the, from the east by the Donetsk River, the south is wide open. They've already crossed the river to be able to attack uh, Lysachansk from the south. And the narrowness of this salient, particularly because of uh, the advances around Propasna, it means that it's very difficult to get supplies, especially a big problem trying to position anti-aircraft. They've been saying that they did not want to bring anti-aircraft weapons into that area because it's just too easy to target. And I've even heard some Ukrainian officials say that they are prepared to do a withdrawal from the Sichansk if they have to. Although at the moment, it looks like they're very much digging in for a siege. The option has to still be on the table to withdraw to avoid a massive loss of life because at any moment, if Russia can gain enough of initiative, they don't have to travel too much further to close off the roads into the city and even surround it. But uh, Russian sources, of course, are saying they have the city already surrounded. That is bullshit. It is not at that dire of a point yet, but it is something very much to keep an eye on. Additionally, I just do want to note that if Lysychansk does fall, um, that will represent the entire occupation of Luhansk Oblast. And of course, that will free up uh, Russian units to advance towards Slavyansk, which is the last major fortress city that Ukraine has in the Donbass. Well, Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, it's all really the same uh, metropolitan area. If Lysychansk falls and if the Russians capitalize on that momentum um, to move south towards um, Kramatorsk and, and Slavyansk, then they will have a very good chance of winning the battle um, for Donbass. This would put Ukraine obviously in a very poor negotiating position and will likely lead to a um, massive morale blow, not only across the armed forces, um, but for Ukrainians in general, a lot of the kind of optimism that Ukrainians have had in this war has to do with the Russian retreat from a lot of the northern fronts in Kiev, Chernihiv, Zhytomyr. Uh, however, that doesn't mean that the Russian army is toothless. Um, I've spoken to multiple sources within the armed forces that have told me the Russians have been adapting their tactics. They have been learning and they have been getting better, uh, which is not words you want to hear. Yeah, they're not so stupid anymore. They're not so stupid anymore, which is uh, incredibly disappointing because Russian stupidity has been a very large contributing factor to much of Russia's losses uh, in the war so far. However, to not be too doomerist about things, again, it is war and fortunes do change. Um, there will be periods of defeat. There will be periods of victory. And we can only hope that after Severodonetsk, we will be able to push forward, especially with uh, new U.S. and Western arms to retake at least some of that territory. But in the meantime, there is 
one axis in which we are seeing a little bit more success, and that is on the Black Sea coast and the southern front. What's happening in Kherson, Anthony? Kherson, it's difficult to talk about it because the information has been so scant and there hasn't been, you know, the dramatic uh, formation of pockets and things like that that have happened on the Donbass front. But the Ukrainian army has been slowly lurching forward, pressing upon the uh, Ukrainian city of Kherson, which was occupied very early in the war. Uh, I apparently is what claims to be some kind of recon unit that even made it to the city limits of Kherson itself. Though, keep in mind that one is a recon unit. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, any kind of actual presence. And two, cities in Ukraine tend to have quite large um, city limits. So this isn't like, you know, getting into the city center or anything like that, just kind of brushing the edges of it. But there is slow progress being made along uh, Russian-occupied territory in Kherson Oblast that is looking quite positive. Now, Ukrainian military analysts have been saying that its advances on Kherson are partially due to the fact that uh, Russia is so hyper-focused on taking Severodonetsk, which uh, weakens its ability to defend its other holdings in occupied territory of Ukraine. But it is a pretty considerable uh, percentage of the Russian forces in Kherson as well. So although they have the largest concentration around Severodonetsk, it's also the second largest in Kherson. Um, so these advances have been in largely rural areas, which is where Ukraine does have a bit of a disadvantage because of the importance of artillery in these wide open spaces, but nonetheless, they have been able to advance. Um, there are, there's very, very little territory in between uh, Ukrainian held territory and Kherson right now. So there, that is quite a bit to be optimistic about there. There has also been Ukrainian advances in the Zaporizhia Oblast, though again, very small ones, just kind of lurching forward, taking the next village over from the front line, essentially. And in Donbass, there is a small offensive going on right now uh, towards uh, the Volmovaha direction. So basically, uh, Russia has most of its forces in Donbass in the northern part of Donbass to take Severodonetsk, which has weakened their position in southern Donbass. So while um, the most dramatic fighting, you can say, has happened around Severodonetsk, uh, Ukraine has been able to capitalize on that and make advances elsewhere, including around Izium. So the Izium axis, Ukraine has been able to uh, put pressure on that from the West. So Izium is where the Russians have been putting the initial part of their Donbass offensive, but they haven't been able to advance so much there for the last several weeks from that salient and ukraine has been able to uh, push up against that salient and getting closer and closer to this city is is Yum itself so it kind of uh relaxes some of the extreme doomerism that comes from the fall of severodonetsk it's not all bad there are still some gains being made so we don't know where the war is going right now, essentially. And just to make it clear, 
if anyone says that they know where the war is going, they are wrong. There is literally no way to tell. Uh, there is not a enough public information by far to accurately make an assessment. And B, war hinges on a lot more things than uh, simple material factors and morale certainly plays a giant role in things. Uh, we've also seen a major uptick in partisan activity in Russian occupied territory, different uh, ammo depots and such within uh, Kherson and Zaporizhia Oblast have been destroyed by partisans. And this bit is still not fully confirmed, but it seems as though Ukrainian member of the Rada, Alexei Kovalev, who had turned traitor and tried to join the occupation authorities in Kherson, was apparently killed in a car bomb, uh, assassinated by the partisans. This isn't fully confirmed yet. I don't want to throw like full weight behind it, but there hasn't been anything to debunk it, if that means anything. So good news on, on that as well. The video evidence of the, the video footage um, of the blown up car seems to be pretty definitive. Yeah. And he, he would think he would come out and say, actually, I'm alive at this point. So <laughs> I assume he's dead. Um, so he, he is probably dead. And, and uh, Anthony, like you said, partisan activity is taking up. Um, at the same time, while there's, there's no reason to be uh, incredibly pessimistic about Ukraine's chances, I would say one also has to be realistic about the chances of victory. Um, but there may be a factor that can turn the tide um, decisively in Ukraine's favor, uh, and that is the recent delivery of U.S.-made um, multiple launch rocket systems, HIMARS, uh, in Ukraine. I believe a uh, count was 126 units of HIMARS are now in active combat in Ukraine, and these are pretty definitively a game changer at least in the long-range artillery duels um, that Russia is so fond of engaging in um, simply because HIMARS have a maximum range of 70 kilometers which more than matches the Soviet-made systems um, used by Russia and it goes without saying that they are um, far far more accurate than comparable Russian or Soviet systems important point there where uh, Russia is able to have the advantage in quantity of just putting shells down range, but that largely has to do with its absolutely gigantic reserves of ammunition that are decades old. So it isn't always the most up-to-date equipment that they're using. So these HIMARS will be superior to what Russia is able to bring to the table but again, quantity versus quality, what wins out, HIMARS will be more accurate and in many ways longer range, but there just isn't as many of them. So quantity, quality, we'll see. Yes. And again, um, for Ukraine's Soviet made stocks, um, which are largely the same equipment as the Russians, Ukraine is simply running out of ammunition for them. A lot of these stocks uh, were destroyed in the past eight years of war. Prior to that, they had been sold off or simply um, deprecated. So there's going to be a period where Ukraine has not quite enough Western weapons to make up the difference, but at the same time is 
critically low on ammunition for the weapons it does have. And that is going to be a dangerous, a very dangerous period in this war, as it will provide Russia with a week or two of openings to to exploit. Um, Of course, the hope is that the Russian military command uh, is not adept at exploiting this, um, which we've seen some some evidence for. Uh, At the same time, you can't always count on your enemy's stupidity to win a battle or a war for you. You also have to have your own cleverness. So you're hoping Ukraine's general staff is up to the challenge. I've also seen that Romania is going to try and play catch up with the old ammunition. Um, Apparently, they are trying to get their own production in place to produce ammunition for these older guns. But that takes time to do. And if they can get production to a level that is actually useful for Ukraine in the time that is needed, that seems unlikely to me. But Romania, thankfully for them, they are giving it a go. To, they, they've, seen, they've seen the gap. They're going to try to do something about it. Yeah, unfortunately, this is the kind of stuff that needed to kick off about four months ago when the war started. Um, this is something I, I want to ago. reiterate. <laughs> it needed to get going eight years ago. Yeah, I need to get going eight years ago, to be honest. But it's something I wanted to reiterate um, from things I've said on Twitter, which is that um, this is an industrial war. This is not comparable to really any recent conflict we've seen in the past 30 or 40 years. We're not going against um, this isn't a war between uh, minor powers using like tiny stocks of outdated equipment fought by people who don't care about the cause. Um, This is war between what at least used to be pretty strong industrial powerhouses. um, One of which is having its industrial capabilities diminished day by day. Um, And the, the, the defense minister uh, Alexei Resnikov recently said that the Russians can afford to fire. They're, they're using it as many as a thousand shells per day um, and called the resource limitless. They, they can afford to basically indefinitely keep firing these thousand shells per day. It does not inconvenience the Russians one bit. Um, and in order to push the Russians back, Ukraine will have to have comparable capabilities. There's this isn't. Um, it doesn't matter how many fancy new toys you have if you only have a dozen of them and your enemy has hundreds. You have to be able to match them in that output. Or you have to be able to uh, use the weapons you do have with such a degree of precision that the enemy is is unable to, to keep up, which, again, we have not seen that. Um, Russia, as Anthony mentioned, Russia loves going out into the fields and just bombarding positions from dozens of kilometers away in what we call artillery duels. And artillery duels do come down to numbers. High Mars can match Russian and Soviet equipment in that manner. But again, there's 126 High Mars. Meanwhile, Russia has hundreds and hundreds of Oregons and Grods um, and uh, other artillery pieces, thousands of howitzers and so on. So these numbers are going to have to multiply incredibly rapidly to make significant changes in 
on the battlefield. Otherwise, Ukraine will keep steadily losing territory, as, as has been the case so far. Current military aid, as, as large as some are trying to make it out to be, and it is quite large, uh, is still nowhere near sufficient. You can have all the fancy toys you want, like these HIMARS. Uh, a 40-year-old shell will kill you just as dead as one made right off the assembly line. A quantity has a quality all of its own, and Ukraine desperately needs much, much more. They've been trying to say this for so long. For the Western partners have been resisting this to no end. And even though there has been an uptick in aid recently, and we'll get to that in a moment, it's still nowhere near enough, and uh, there's a lot of uh, hot air being spewed out of trying to make um, France, Germany, et cetera, look better than what they actually are. And uh, to kind of exemplify all of this, um, on June 24th, we saw the biggest mass airstrike that Russia has conducted so far in the war all across the country, something like 60 cruise missiles in total were fired into Ukraine, hitting multiple targets all across the country. Um, and Ukraine doesn't really have answers to that kind of mass assault. Well, a significant number of these rockets were shot down, uh, a seemingly higher percentage than other defenses. So let's not by saying there's no response, but granted, granted that uh, Ukraine still does have air defenses. At the same time, Russia can keep committing these sorts of strikes basically indefinitely and with impunity. Um, these strikes are very often launched um, over plenty of them. Um, I believe were launched from the territory of Belarus, which there's no answer for there. There is no answer for um, the Russians consistently use platforms based as far afield as the Caspian Sea, um, as well as, of course, their um, missile bases in Crimea to launch these strikes. And again, Ukraine has no answer for most of this. Um, luckily, this airstrike did not achieve um, what I what one would presume the Russians goal was. Um, damage seems to have been minimal. Of course, um, there have been people killed. Infrastructure has been damaged. Um, but by and large, it seems that the uh, effects have not been as widespread as uh, Russian command probably hoped, wasting all of that money um, hitting targets in Ukraine. Uh, at the same time, they can afford to waste a lot more money. And all of these incremental losses do add up. Some updates since the time of recording. Russia has continued to launch cruise missiles at targets within Ukraine, including at civilian targets, in a very large effort. On the 26th, they fired 14 missiles at Kiev. Four of them hit targets, including a kindergarten, which was thankfully empty at the time, and then also an apartment building. This was actually the same apartment building where the journalist was killed in a different missile strike some weeks back. One person was killed in this attack, but their two family members were sent to the hospital, though are currently in stable condition. 
And then on the 27th, Russia fired at a shopping mall in the central Ukrainian city of Kremenchuk, which is more or less the dead center of Ukraine geographically on the Dnipro River. This shopping mall was right next to a rail yard and industrial zone, which could have been the uh, intended targets. But the shopping mall was destroyed. Um, I'm recording this at around midnight of Monday the 27th. And as of this moment, uh, the authorities are reporting that, that approximately 13 are dead and 40 are wounded. So these cruise missile strikes are continuing and can be expected to continue in the future. In our next segment, we're going to be talking about something that shows much, much more promise than the brutal meat grinder that is the Donbass front, which is that Ukraine made a significant diplomatic gain to achieve a candidate status in the EU. And we'll walk through some of the steps that led to that. So originally, there was a visit by the leaders of Germany, France, Italy, and Romania to the country doing the standard. Uh, you know, tour Bucha, um, speak into different uh, constituent constituencies here, normal song and dance for foreign visitors. So no need to get too much into detail of what they did here. But at the end, well, ex except for the one small detail, which I thought was sad and hilarious at the same time, is that leader of Romania that was sent had to travel in a separate train from the others. I thought that was a bit of a slap in the face, but. Anyway, at the end of their visit here, they said that they would support giving Ukraine candidate status in the European Union so long as they fulfilled a list of prerequisites, which Ukraine soon did. Almost immediately afterwards, Ukraine finally signed off on the Istanbul Convention. Now, what the Istanbul Convention is, is that it is mostly about um, protecting against gendered and relationship violence, which is something that is kind of a big concern in Ukraine, uh, considering uh, different social factors around, you know, poverty, alcoholism, et cetera. Uh, there has not been enough of a response to gendered and relationship violence so far. And one of the main goals of the feminist movement in Ukraine was to pass this law or to sign to uh, ra ratify this treaty. There still has to be laws to, you know, uh, fulfill the terms of the treaty, but just ratifying the treaty on its own was a, is a major step forward that has been fought for for a very, very long time. Now, the, the basis of this treaty is based on what's called the four P's, uh, pre prevention, protection, and support of victims, uh, prosecution of offenders, meaning to try to get the people who, who are violent domestically, get them behind bars or somewhere within the system, and integrated policies to get everything all together. And then like a whole list of measures to cover each of these four pieces. It's actually a pretty well-written and extensive uh, treaty that Ukraine just ratified. Now, the biggest opposition to the ratification of this treaty in Ukraine has come really from pro-Russian sources. The Russian Orthodox Church has been the number one uh, organization which has lobbied against uh, these feminist policies. Uh, although, of course, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and other religious organizations have not been very friendly as well, it has mostly been the Russian Orthodox Church who has been the largest 
a lobbying group against it. So the other factor here that allowed the Istanbul Convention to be passed is just that these pro-Russian forces are weaker than they've ever been in the country. They are not there to put up the fierce resistance to passing these laws that they could have even a few months ago. Their cultural capital is spent and they just cannot stand up to the promise of the European Union. A lot of this has been because they see, they call it gender ideology, uh, what we in, from the West might recognize as feminism or trans rights, even as what they conflate it with. And they just want to make sure that none of that can possibly enter Ukraine. Treaty's ratified now, so there's going to be forward progress. It's worth noting that a huge chunk, if not the main chunk of conservative and reactionary ideology in Ukraine has been from the pro-Russian side. Um, they have consistently uh, opposed progressive policies in Ukraine. They have consistently pushed for harsher criminal penalties um, for various things. Uh, they have consistently pushed against women's rights initiatives and anti-corruption initiatives. This is all mostly been from the um, pro-Russian parties and the pro-Russian side. Without their influence on Ukrainian politics, um, the policies that Ukrainians prefer tend to be more in line with uh, Western European opinions on that matter. Um, and even if people personally may dislike um, the notion, they are typically unwilling to act into putting that kind of thing into law, um, as opposed to, uh, say, the uh, Ukrainian Communist Party, which once promoted um, the introduction of a so-called gay propaganda law in Ukraine, where having queer representation of any kind in public in Ukraine would have been a criminal offense. Um, obviously, <laughs> the Ukrainian Communist Party uh, was a staunchly pro-Russian um, outfit. And again, that is all gone. And with the Russians showing their true colors, as it were, um, these forces have basically no political backing at the moment. Yeah, this Istanbul Convention specifically has to do with domestic violence. So if we look at what the Russian Orthodox Church did in Russia, uh, previously domestic violence was criminalized in Russia, uh, but the Russian Orthodox Church lobbied hard against the government to get them to make it so just beating the shit out of your wife is no longer a criminal offense like there's still some kind of legal prescription against it but domestic violence itself is fine according to russian law more or less and yes in practice if you are a in practice wife, it's completely fine if yeah in practice if you are a battered wife and you go to the police station to file in a assault report against your husband the cops will laugh you out of the room now um, when it was criminalized uh, due to the kind of inherent misogyny in Russian culture, they likely would have still done it. Um, but you could at least sue them for not enforcing the law. That is not true anymore. You will get laughed out of the room and likely told that you are a bad wife for even daring to complain. Uh, it is it, folks, Russia, Russia is not a progressive country. 
Not in the slightest. And the same forces that did that in Russia have been on the forefront of making sure that domestic violence is legal in Ukraine. Um, has been in a bit of a uh, legal limbo. Again, the Istanbul Convention closes it, makes it completely banned. But if you say went to the Women's March a few years ago, the main people protesting against it would be Russia aligned, uh, very visibly aligned with the Russian Orthodox Church. One woman I know was just a Russian citizen. She was probably <laughs> she was probably just a direct Russian agent now that I think of it. But this is all very much tied to, especially before Maidan, before Maidan, especially all this um, uh, uh, very misogynistic movements were headed by pro-Russian forces. Um, recently, they have um, kind of taken a, a back seat, uh, a lot of to some of the more Ukrainian far right movement, but it's so much smaller. Go to the like I went to the Women's March last year. And there was like 12 tradition and order guys standing there with their flags, just being assholes. Like it's, it's a much weaker, um, homegrown misogynistic movement than, than, than what has been pushed on Ukraine by Russian actors. As we have repeatedly said, um, throughout the entire run of this podcast, Ukrainians are not actually inherently reactionary and do not typically push for reactionary policies in government. Uh, Ukrainians are uh, historically a pretty left-leaning population. Like I'd say that the predominant opinion is still fairly socially conservative, but in a very live and let live kind of way. That live and let live is one of the kind of defining traits, I think, of um, <laughs> Ukrainian policy. Uh, and Ukrainian attitudes is people may dislike things themselves personally, but they're not going to go out of their way to be assholes to you about it. Um, unlike the Russians, which who, who will and do it happily. Where their culture is very much about domineering and make sure that their way is the only way and they'll kill you if you disagree. <sighs> but... This was but one of several measures that were demanded of Ukraine in order to move forward with its candidacy status. There was a raft of mostly about uh, anti-corruption things. Uh, if you are a longtime listener of Ukraine Without Hype, you would know our very negative opinions on the Ukrainian justice system, especially the higher level courts, which are terribly corrupt. Uh, there was a bunch of measures they demanded in order to clean up, especially the higher level courts. We'll see how far that can go. But I think that there's more momentum for that now than there's ever been because Ukraine really wants them to be in the EU and there's more appetite for uh, forcing the issue that there wasn't there before, I think, especially now that there is a set goal to accomplish, which is very, very important. It's not just uh, clean up and hopefully cross our fingers someday. We'll see something from it. Right now, there's a list of goals. And if we accomplish those goals, we can join the EU. And that has a lot of uh, political salience to it. Uh, it'll, stay, it'll still take a very long time, but accomplish the goal. I mean, I give it about five to seven years before we do enter the EU. It's, it's hard to overstate just how much joining. Well... <laughs> It took Croatia nine years, and they were pretty far along. Uh, Bosnia is still in, in in this very nasty 
will they won't they situation where they do have candidate status. Turkey has had candidate status since 1987, 1988, something like that, without looking it up right now. So candidate status is not necessarily joining the, I think five years is, is also being quite optimistic. Granted, but at the same time, um, Ukraine has a lot more political support from leaderships of um, the kind of main EU hegemons, um, specifically uh, France, whose President Macron uh, promised that he would uh, direct um, France's diplomatic efforts into uh, getting Ukraine into the EU under a simplified procedure. Um, Germany will likely be opposed to this. Um, at the same time, the German populace's opinions for Ukraine are incredibly positive in comparison to their leadership. So the wind may still blow in Ukraine's favor in Germany as well. So it is entirely possible that Ukraine will be able to accede under a, a simplified procedure. This is, of course, also been a call by President Zelensky, who has uh, repeatedly insisted that Europe um, devise a, a uh, specialized procedure for Ukraine um, to join the EU even quicker. But at the very least, it represents a step towards the EU. And again, the Ukrainian populace has wanted to join the EU um, even prior to 2014. Uh, this has been kind of a goal since um, perhaps the um, Orange Revolution or even earlier of a great many Ukrainians to be seen and accepted as a quote-unquote normal European country, um, which of course joining the EU would be one of the ultimate signifiers of that uh, status. And at the same time, again, a lot of the uh, political actors that were opposed to and preventing these reforms um, from being implemented are gone because they were all Russian traitors. They will no longer be able to stand in the way of, say, um, court reform or anti-corruption reform, especially on the highest levels. A lot of these corrupt judges were very closely tied to the opposition bloc, to the Party of Regions, uh, which was the pro-Russian party um, in Ukraine, and they no longer have those political backers. While undoubtedly there will still be some homegrown resistance taking a myriad of forms to this, there, will, there, there is unlikely to be an organized, politi influential political movement now standing in Ukraine. Yeah, I was going to kind of put a pin in that part for a different discussion about, you know, uh, traitors, essentially. But recently, within the last few days, the opposition platform political party was uh, formally disbanded after there's the sanctions against them were challenged in court and they lost the court case. And now Apple block opposition platform opposition block no longer exist as political parties. The these are the pro-Russian parties that formed out of the Yanukovych system. Now, it's not getting rid of the individual people in them. If you are a member of these parties and you hold political office, they will still have this political office. But the party itself is gone. They will um, probably just organize as something else. But the idea as like a normal part of the political system is very much challenged. Considering that their um, kind of erstwhile leader, um, the oligarch Medvedchuk, is currently sitting 
uh, in prison awaiting trial for treason, um, it, it, it's unlikely that they will be able to regain um, as much political prominence as they had. But going back to our point, reliably, if there is any kind of vote in the Rada about anti-corruption, they would vote against it. Um, the other political parties may align in different ways. Uh, Servant of the People Party kind of played off the fact that they had a reliable pro-corruption vote in Oppo Block to be more split on it and not have party discipline. But now without being able to kind of rely on their informal partner in promoting corruption, they'll have to uh, really make a stand themselves of if they're going to move forward with this EU candidate status or stick to their old ways. There's no more excuses anymore to dance around it. Uh, do you want EU status? Yes. And vote for these things. It's as simple as that. I mean, that's the basically the, the hard line that the EU has told Ukraine that we are willing to um, help you get into the EU, but you have to do these things. Of course, um, it being wartime, it makes it a little easier um, for some of these reforms to pass. Um, no one wants to be branded a traitor, um, which is a very common accusation in Ukraine um, to the point where there is a meme about Zrada, which is what uh, treason is in Ukraine, that everyone is constantly committing a Zrada against someone Some. Yeah, it's a very uh, culturally salient word, Zorada. Um, at the same time, a lot of these these guys that um, were part of the opposition platform, um, at least I would hope, will uh, lose their seats. Um, again, maybe not, but my, my hope is that voters, um, the next election cycle, will take a look at uh, how these guys have acted and what they've said in the past. Um, and and take a good hard think about whether they want them to keep representing them um, in Parliament. My hope is that they will change their minds on that feature. I guess my last thoughts on this before we kind of round off with a small section at the end on international issues is that this is what people have been working for. This is what people have been striving for since Maidan and before it. This is what the Heavenly Hundred died for. This is like this whole generation of the post-Soviet Ukrainians, this is what they have really been trying to do and have been tremendously, tremendously um, inspirational about of trying to drive this country forward and to try to fix corruption, to try and fix all these old issues from this, its Soviet legacy, to try to rid itself of occupation in, in all forms, including the the Russian um, support for corruption and such to make Ukraine what they would call a quote unquote normal country where people can live their lives in with a measure of prosperity and freedom and without having to deal with all the Soviet nonsense. And this generation of Ukrainians that strove for it on Maidan are now the generation of Ukrainians who are fighting for it on the front line. Um, uh, I know Romeo, that you've definitely seen the same thing of friends of friends saying, here's someone who, who died just every day, including like the leaders of these anti-corruption movements who, who joined the military and pay the ultimate price for it. So I'm, I'm trying to be a bit cautious by saying EU candidate status is not EU membership. It's still a very long way to go. There's still a lot of steps that have to be taken. There's still friction that we faced along the way as like different Balkan countries have faced. 
but this is still the tangible thing that all these people have been fighting and dying for all these years. So it, it needs to have a measure of real realism to it, but it's still quite frankly, a beautiful thing. It's absolutely something to, to celebrate um, for Ukraine. I mean, it's incredibly depressing that it took a war um, to kind of uh, kick Europe in, in the ass and get them started on this. Um, at the same time, at least it's happening. And it is one like unalloyed positive to look forward to um, after the end of the war. And after Ukraine's victory is our eventual, hopefully, membership in the European Union. Um, and just bef- again, before we go on, I just want to say some of the people who uh, some of the confirmations on some of these individuals who were killed. Um, so journalist Max Levin, uh, if you're paying attention to the news, you may have heard his name early on in the war. He had uh, gone north of Kiev to report on the Russian offensive heading, heading towards Bucha. He was found dead. And information recently came out that he was most likely tortured and then executed. And uh, Roman Ratushny, he was a Maidan activist who ever since then had been um, mostly focusing on illegal development. He was protesting development in the Prasasavyar area, which is like a ski resort kind of thing in the, ci- in the city. It's cheap where people can go. He was trying to uh, protect it from illegal development and various other anti-corruption issues. He was killed uh, fighting near Izium. I just want to say that I knew Max uh, personally. And I had worked with him um, when I had worked at Hermansky. And Max was uh, an absolute inspiration to everyone at the newsroom. Um, And he will be sorely missed. And for... um, foreign uh supporters of ukraine we did just we there was news that came out that the uh donetsk puppet authorities are moving forward with their execution of aiden aslan and sean pinner who we talked about previously so like with max um who you knew personally roman um one of our former colleagues uh was also killed quite a, a bit ago these are the people that have been um, pushing Ukraine forward. And I think that is, might be one of the biggest differences in the war is that the people dying on Ukraine's side are often kind of the leaders of society in a way, the people who have really taken the lead to try to make Ukraine a better place. While on the Russian side, their soldiers who are dying are people who society does not care about in the slightest. It is their poor, it is their minorities, it is their people who they could not give a single crap about at any time and that is a a factor in the war really they have to think about from a war making perspective is that for the ukrainians who die (laughs) we're sad about them and the russians aren't that's just another difference between the russian mindset and the ukrainian one um again to push away all of the old stereotypes i hope they're well dead and buried by now that ukrainians and russians have much in common the the russian cultural mindset is radically opposed to the ukrainian one ukrainians are um based in a lot of ways on their love of life uh while russians are based in the exercise of power whether that be uh 
state power or minor bullying power. Our last segment will be a much brief one, so hang on there. Uh, There has been a number of international factors that have been going on that do affect the war in Ukraine. Um, First, I would like to talk about this whole issue of EU candidate status and ascension. It wasn't just Ukraine being looked at at the time. It was the various Balkan members that have uh, EU candidate status to see where their membership would go. And unfortunately, the answer seems to be nowhere. So this was Bosnia, Albania, North Macedonia were looking to move forward with their candidate status and nothing happened with it. Although there is one um, more troubling aspect there was that one of the EU members who had been most opposed to these Balkan members joining the EU was Bulgaria. Um, Bulgaria was largely opposed to the candidate status of North Macedonia on nationalist grounds that you may be familiar with if you've been hearing the way that Russians speak of Ukrainians is that the Bulgarian government position is that Macedonians are just Bulgarians who lie to themselves and say they're something different. So Macedonia, they say that their language is Macedonian. Bulgaria said you cannot join the EU unless you admit that your language is Bulgarian. And the prime minister of Bulgaria eventually relented on this status and said that Macedonia could join uh, the EU and without these weird nationalist um, uh, preconditions. And because of that, the various ultranationalist, pro-Russian and pro-corruption forces within Bulgaria had a bit of an internal coup and had a vote of no confidence to get rid of him. Now, the pro-Russian opposition will probably put their own guy forward but this is an issue that ties together the anti-corruption fight because he was also anti-corruption, uh, Prime Minister Petkov. It was, it, this will be a nationalist fight is that, again, he kind of tamped down on this, these wild nationalist demands at the head of other countries. And it's also about Russia and Ukraine because he was very, very supportive of Ukraine against Russia. And Bulgaria is a country that has a lot of pro-Russian sentiment inside of it particularly through, say, the Orthodox Church, through oligarchs, through that kind of thing. And he was fighting against all three of these things and eventually lost. So Bulgaria is a supporter of Ukraine. Its future of that is much more uncertain now, depending on who replaces him. And that's, in a macro sense, that's something we really have to look at with the rest of the EU. Their pro-Ukrainian positions are not so solid, they can't change. Uh, If you look at France, for example, um, the far-right political forces there who had gained a considerable amount within their parliamentary elections, which are recent, they're very pro-Russia, as well as their far-left are very pro-Russia. So even if these countries are friendly towards Ukraine now, that's not a guarantee for the future. And Bulgaria is the worst-case example of that. Um. In an international news, just to wrap things up here, we have Lithuania. And in Lithuania, they, there is a Russian enclave, uh, Kaliningrad, uh, that is separate from the rest of Russia. It's on the Baltic coast. If you look at a map, it all kind of makes sense. It's, it's something to understand much better visually. So just type in Kaliningrad into Google Maps. It is completely surrounded by Poland and Lithuania. And recently, Lithuania... Uh, put in measures to block 
a rail transit into Kaliningrad in order to comply with EU sanctions that that prevent um, the transport of different Russian goods. So now Kaliningrad is blocked off from land access, but they still have sea access. So you may be seeing in the news that Kaliningrad is under a blockade. That is not true. That is a lie. That is a uh, change of the facts to try to make it look like the EU is being aggressive towards Russia or trying to take over part of Russia or doing an active war against Russia. It's not happening. They still have the port. They still have boats. It's not blockaded. At the same time, uh, the kind of cessation of rail transit to Kaliningrad has resulted in the, the very amusing um, picture of Russian threats towards the Baltics. Um, Russian, various Russian politicians have stated that um, they will quote unquote revoke Lithuanian independence, which is. Which are they very amusing to do with Latvia? <laughs> it's very amusing that they believe they, they can do that. Um, the Baltics are members of NATO. Um, and as one Ukrainian military expert put it, it would be a very short war if Russia did attack um, Lithuania uh, directly. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening and your uh, patience with our uh, difficult production schedule that that missile really threw me off my game this week. <laughs> um, yeah. So I would like to thank all of our patrons. And if you enjoy our content and would like to sh support the show, please uh, go to patreon.com slash Ukraine without hype and join their illustrious ranks. And to name our followers, we have Nope, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana, Devi, Don, Giuseppe, Theo, Abir, Aiden, Alex, Amea, Barbara, Big Rob, Brianna, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal, Daniel Ostrowski, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Deborah Lee, Deborah Grazer, Eric Honold, George, Grace, Had to Laugh, Jacob, James Wise, Jennifer Jarvis, Jessica Eck, Jerd, Justin Devendorf, Kristen, Laura De, De Leon, Laura Lacari, Levy Grove, Lottie, Melissa, Mike Rones, Mikey Whiplash, Noam Hart, Patricia George, Patricia Spurls, Paul Bailey, Rachel, Rajesh, Randy McNerlin, Robert, Sanjay, Scott, Gangris, Steve Bien, Stephen Greenberg, T. Bart, Vic, and Will Stevens. Thank you all so very, very much. And once again, everyone, please stay safe, stay up to date on Ukraine, support it best you can. Slava Ukraini.